0: Um, I must start by making one thing clear, which is that uh, actually the title of this uh, lecture is rather more general than what I'm actually going to talk about. So there have been some interesting themes discussed, and if you're expecting me to talk about those, then you may be a little disappointed. Um, Because actually I want to focus on just the way that, um, I want to focus in particular on harmony and the way that uh, having a little bit of a mathematical perspective on harmony can illuminate it. And um, it'll be particularly jazz harmony. So I say that, but um, a lot of what I say could apply equally well to uh, certain forms of classical harmony. So music of uh, Debussy and Ravel, for example, has a lot in common with um, jazz harmony, or their harmonic uh, use does. So although it's jazz that I'll be overtly talking about, um, I'm actually talking about something a little bit more broad. So it's narrower, but not quite as narrow as it might at first seem. So I want to start with a little warm-up exercise uh, of the sort that you might see on an IQ test or something like that. Here's a sequence of numbers, 7, 2, 9, 4, 11, 6. Anybody want to tell me? Okay, so 13 is perhaps the most natural thing to say, and that's not, well, I can't say it's the wrong answer, but it's not the intended answer. Um, Oops, sorry. The intended answer is 1. Now, if you think about that, um, what we're really doing is we're, we're, if you think of a clock face, and you go seven hours ahead at each stage, then you go from 7 to what would have been 14, but then it becomes 2, and then 2 to 9, and then 9 to 16, which becomes 4, 4 to 11, 11 to 6. That is the main piece of math that you need to understand. It's clock arithmetic. It means that when you get to 12, it goes back to zero. So if if you've ever done it in your head, it's 10 o'clock, what time will it be in five hours' time? Then you should be okay. Uh, Just a quick um, couple of sums here. So what's 2 plus 2 in clock arithmetic? Well, if it's 2 o'clock, then in two hours' time it'll be 4 o'clock. That's not very interesting because it's just the same as if you weren't doing clock arithmetic. But if we went for 8 plus 8, for example, 8 hours after 8 o'clock, it's also 4 o'clock. Um, and again, you, one way of doing it is to say, 8 plus 8 is 16, and then you subtract 12 to get 4. Um, so down at the bottom here, I've written the 7 times table. I've extended the sequence that we had before. I've started it at 0. So it goes 0, 7, 2, 9, 4, 11, 6, one, eight, 3, 10, 5, oh, and then it repeats itself, 0, 7, 2. So if you keep jumping ahead by 7 hours, eventually you'll get back to midnight again, and then after that it'll uh, repeat itself. Why I'm bothering to tell you about that, uh, I will say in just a moment. Um, well, I'll say it right now, actually. <laughs> OK. There's a, a useful uh, coincidence, which is that we have 12 hours around the clock face, and the octave in music is also divided into 12. It's useful just for the purposes of illustration. So also on the piano, you with a number of the notes, setting C to be 0 and then C sharp to be 1, and so on then um, when you add, you know, so instead of adding five hours, it might be adding five semitones and that sort of thing. And you get back to the beginning, just as before. So one natural way of thinking about the 12 notes on the piano. So by 12 notes, of course, there are more than 12 notes. But I'm saying if you've got a C here and another C an octave above, I'll count those as the same note. Um, so one way of thinking about it is uh, that as you go up the piano, you just go up a chromatic scale. So each, the next note after C, will be C sharp and then D and then D sharp. It's the next one you find as you look along the piano. Now that's a, a useful way of thinking about it in some ways. It, tells, it gives you an idea of when two notes are close to each other. Um, but there's another way of thinking about it that's also very fruitful. And this time, um, instead of jumping up in semitones, uh, you jump up in fifths. So here I've gone from C to G to D to A to E to B. I feel like I'm gonna have to do a bit of hopping around. Let me just play what that sounds like. So the first way of thinking about it is, and the second way is, oops, I didn't uh, plan it. I didn't quite get to the, um, I should have started an octave lower, but never mind. Um, now a fifth is seven semitones. So what you see here is the musical equivalent of the seven times table in clock arithmetic. So they're the same thing, at least from a mathematical perspective. There's the same abstract structure that underlies the two things. So what what, what are these two ways good for? Well, the first way gives you an idea of when two two notes are melodically close. So um, if two notes are close in the chromatic scale, it means you don't have to jump very much to get from one note to the other. But the other one, uh, the second way, gives you an idea of when two notes are harmonically close. So there is a sense in which, the key of C is quite closely related to the, C, the, the key of G, which is closely related to the key of D, A. If you're, if you're familiar with music, all this will not be news to you at all. Um, but I hope to explain a little bit about why that should be in just a moment. Um, it's nicer, actually, to arrange the notes in a cycle like this, and this is often done. I, I stole this picture off the internet somewhere. Um, so now we can actually see the notes going around in fifths and ending up back where you started. Once you look at it in fifths, it explains various aspects of music, like what is special about the scales that we find special. So you might think, um, when you play an ordinary major scale, for example, why do we decide to go up a tone, and then a tone, and then a semitone, and then a tone, and then a tone, and then a tone, and then a semitone? Um, Before I answer that question, let me just discuss the same thing for the simpler scale, the pentatonic scale. So the pentatonic scale is the scale that goes like this. Um, Or a more familiar version of it is if you just play the black notes on the piano. If you just hit arbitrary black notes on the piano, it always sounds at least OK. You can't sort of clash things too much. And the reason for that is that um, the pentatonic scale is got just by taking consecutive notes, five consecutive notes, in the circle of fifths. And because the circle of fifths is measuring harmonic closeness, if you take five consecutive notes, they'll be close to each other harmonically, which is another way of saying that you don't get clashes. Um, so here's another pentatonic scale. Actually, it's the two that I've just uh, played on the piano. So one is the pentatonic scale that starts with a, a C, and it gives you C, G, D, A, E. If you just do it going up the piano, then it goes C, D, E, G, A. And you might wonder, why do I go up some tones and then jump a minor third, and then go up a tone and jump a minor third? But if you look at it on the circle of fifths, you're just jumping up a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, a fifth. And then it's much more natural. So here are two pentatonic scales. And any pentatonic scale can be got by just taking um, five consecutive notes in the cycle of fifths. Um, What about the major scale? Well, it's just. Instead of taking five consecutive notes, you take seven consecutive notes. So the major scale, the simplest major scale, would be got if you take uh, all the C major, which is what you get if you take all the white notes on the piano. But another way of thinking about that is you take seven consecutive uh, notes in the sequence. Now, that doesn't sound like a major scale. But if you then sort of compress those notes, you get those notes in in a different order. So again, the major scale sounds reasonably harmonious. And one reason for that is that you're, you're taking the notes to be as closely related as you can. Um, so a different major scale. Actually, another little exercise I could ask. This second one, which major scale is that? It doesn't look like a major scale because I've taken it um, along the cycle of fifths. But uh, anybody care to tell me? <laughs> Okay, it looks like A major, that's the trick there. But uh, in fact, it's E major. So um, just as with uh, C major, you have to go down a fifth to get one white note, and then otherwise you go up. So it's the same here. Um, Actually, this is a bit nicer to look at that again on the um, cycle of fifths. I'll point with my finger. Um, So if you look there, you'll see that all the notes from F round to B give you the C major scale and um, all the notes from, say, D round to D-flat, which is better thought of as C-sharp. Actually, no, round to A-flat, I beg your pardon, uh, which is better thought of as G-sharp. That'll give you the A-major scale, for example. Um, And this also actually explains how key signatures behave. So just for those who are familiar with reading music, uh, you'll know that each time your key goes up by a fifth, if you're in the sharps, you add an extra sharp. And with the flats, if you go up a fourth, you add an extra flat. So why is that? You can see it very easily on the um, cycle of fifths. If I just take this, so remember the C major scale was the one that went all the way around from F to B. If I want to convert that into the G major scale, I have to transpose everything up a fifth. Now one way of transposing everything up a fifth is just to shunt it one place along the cycle of fifths. And you see that as you do that, this last thing starts going into the uh, sort of black notes territory. Um, And then if you you transpose it up another fifth, then you've gone two notes into black note territory. And you transpose it another fifth, you go three notes into black note territory. You can just see on the the, um, cycle of fifths, you can just see these key signatures adding black notes as you go along. An obvious question here is, what is it that's so interesting about fifths? There are two answers to that. But the the one I want to talk about at the moment is to do with the frequencies um, or ratios of frequencies between notes. So first, let me just say what's special about an octave. Uh, again, I expect a lot of people here will know this, but what what singles out the octave is that um, each note has a frequency, the number of beats per second, um, and if you double that frequency, the note goes up an octave, and you get this mysterious phenomenon that I can't really—I find philosophically quite interesting—which is that if you go up an octave, you get a new note that is not the same as the note, and yet it is the same as the note that you started with. There's a definite sameness between two Cs, even though one is higher than another. Quite why that should be, as I say, is a little bit mysterious to me. But um, nevertheless, we have this fact that doubling uh, a frequency goes up an octave. Now, uh, if you've got a piano, and if you've got equal temperament, if you want to go up by the same ratio of frequency each time you go up a semitone, You have to choose a ratio um, which, when you take 12 of those and multiply them together, will give you 2. And that way, when you go up 12 semitones, you've gone up an octave. So that gives us the number, um, that I've written there, just underneath the 1, 1.05946. That number is otherwise known as the 12th root of 2. So it's the number which, well, if you take 12 1.05946s, line them all up, and multiply them together, you get 2, or at least you would if if 1.05946 were extended off uh, infinitely far. Anyway, approximately you'll get 2. Now, the ear seems to be particularly sensitive to uh, ratios that are given by nice, simple fractions. Now, 1.05946 is not a nice, simple fraction. Um, But if you look down this list, are there any candidates? None of them look like a particularly nice, simple fraction. But if you look a little bit more closely, you'll see that uh, when you get to the perfect fifth, you've got the number 1.49831, which is extremely close to 1.5. And 1.5 is just 3 over 2. And that really is a very simple fraction. It's about as simple as you can get other than 2 between 1 and 2. So what singles out the fifth is that, to a very close approximation at any rate, um, it is the simplest fraction that you can get between 1 and 2. There are other ways of tuning, which I won't go into, but uh, where you make a fifth be exactly 3 over 2. But then you can't do that for all fifths, because then when you went through 12 of them, you wouldn't get to exactly um, an octave, or some multiple of an octave above the note you started with. So you have to do these little adjustments. So um, that's enough theory. I want to talk about how that uh, interacts with jazz now. So what I want to do first is to tell you about um, the chord progression that makes the 12-bar blues. This is one of the most basic of all uh, jazz, it's probably the most basic. And the version I've written up here there are all sorts of different things that count as 12-bar blues. What I've done here is so primitive that it almost doesn't count as a normal 12-bar blues. Um, What I want to do is just play this. But I'm also going to... um, restrict very much the notes that I'm allowed to do. So when it says C there, I'm only going to play the notes of the C major triad. That's C, E, and G, these three notes. Um, and Tim here is just going to do a very, very simple sort of bass line. And we'll have some comparably simple <laughs> drum line. Uh, and uh, I won't do it for too long, because if you restrict it so heavily the notes you play, It gets quite dull quite quickly but this is uh we'll we'll sort of add to it as we go along all right let's have um two bars two bars (laughs) intro before i actually start i mean all of us put here one two one two three The picture so um, let 's see what we could do um, to add to that that just gives you an idea of what the basic harmonic uh, structure is, but as I say you can 't really uh, it sort of sounds a bit like kind of umpa, umpa sort of music uh. so I want to add a little bit more so but not too much all at one all at once but i 'm going to add two extra ingredients one is um, a couple of extra notes so instead of uh, I'll go for, I'll, I'll make it a pentatonic scale. Um, so I'm adding and that note to my uh, repertoire of notes. Um, but I'm also going to do something else that's very important, um, which is that um, this bit here, went before it goes back, after a while, you start to long for something else. Which is, now one particular thing, not, not just anything else, although you may, might long for that too. But uh, somehow, in order to get yourself back to the key you started in, you want to add in a seventh. So instead of just you want to do or um, so I should add seventh. And what's the purpose of the seventh? This is something I want to talk about, so I'll, I'll stress it now. The purpose of the seventh is it provides some little bit of tension that just sort of pulls you uh, to the next chord. It sort of pulls you to back from the dominant to the tonic. Um, so let's do something like that, but uh, this time as I said before, a sort of blendery, that sort of thing. Um, so we'll just see what that sounds like. One, two, one, two, three. Some people like that sort of thing, and people like, uh, and then other people find that a bit sort of too, I don't know. Jazz aficionados often say it sort of sounds a little bit too Glenn miller or something, <laughs> kind of not meant as, not always meant as a compliment. Um, so there's a very important development that then took place in jazz harmony after that sort of noise. Um, I can't remember what I've got on my next slide. So let me just, uh, okay. The seventh chord changed very much uh, what it meant. So let me just illustrate that the seventh chord, um, I've written here that the meaning of the seventh chord depends very much on its context. So let's just take this chord, It's the seventh chord, and let me just um, illustrate how the context can really change one's perception of it. So first of all, you've just been listening to music that was all, all that sort of thing. So if I play this, you feel it needing to resolve to that. So now let me just wipe that first noise out of your ear by going um, same chord we had before. But now it wants to go if I, if you don't believe me, this, 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 sound, this will sound pretty strange. That's <laughs> not, not what you're expecting to hear. Um, so we just change the key to uh, F sharp. we got the same three notes. And then now it wants to resolve in a different way. But there's something yet more important, um, which is, supposing I play something like this. <laughs> Does anyone feel any need for it to resolve at all? Do you want it to go like that? No. It stands on its own. It becomes a freestanding chord. And so that sort of style of jazz, the seventh, suddenly becomes something that's not, in a sense, got the tension that you had before. Uh, it doesn't need to resolve into the, uh, from the dominant to the tonic. Um, and But that raises an extra thing. So, before, the seventh was very useful. It created a sort of tension that got you to, or pushed you from one chord to another. If you don't have that tension anymore, you sort of music thrives on having tension and release. So what can you do instead? And uh, I want to introduce a technical term now, scrunchiness. Um, so I want to try and get you to hear it, and then I'll explain what I think it's, uh, what's actually going on. Um, so let's take uh, a seventh chord, a basic seventh chord, and I'm going to put triads over the top, and we'll just see what they sound like. Some of them will sound better than others. And before I start, um, I maintain, and I'm what I've hoped to manage to persuade you, that there are three distinct sort of sounds. One is what I call tame sounds, where it sort of sounds okay. There's no clashes, but nothing very uh, challenging. There are the ones that are scrunchy. They sort of make you uh, sort of say, "Yeah." So we give a tennis players' fist pump. It's a fantastic uh, sounding. It's a sort of dissonant, but in a, in a nice way that uh, you might have heard on a lot of jazz. And there's other ones that are dissonant, but in a sort of unsatisfactory way. It's more like when you've just served a double fault or something. So Um, I hope that you will just agree with my uh, assessment of which one is which. And maybe I'll, uh, if if anyone feels like sort of saying whether they find something tame, scrunchy, or just unpleasant, uh, then feel free to uh, give me so. I'll do the first few. So that I would call just tame. That one I find a little bit unsatisfactory. You could argue that it's scrunchy, but I hope that... uh, it's sort of somehow sounds something sounds quite not quite not quite right about it, especially if you compare it with this. Somehow that's got a much more satisfactorily dissonant sound to it. And so is that one. That's, I, I would call that scrunchy. If anyone really wants to uh, challenge this afterwards, well, my thesis will will be completely demolished. But apart from that. If you, <laughs> That one is back to being a bit odd. Also a bit odd somehow. That one's back to scrunchy, that's dissonant in a nice way. Um, I'll keep going. Something's a bit wrong about it. Scrunchy, good. Um, another nice one. Very nice, really. Especially if I bring it down a little bit, voice the things slightly differently, and then not quite right either. All right. I hope that even if you don't think the words scrunchy and unpleasant, those words are exactly right for the chords, you'll at least detect that there was a difference between the ones that I and my uh, whatever thought were scrunchy and the ones that I didn't like. There's somehow a sort of difference that you can hear. And actually, there's a very simple explanation of what that difference is. There are two chords, or two uh, 2 note chords, that are quite dissonant. One is, they both got by changing an octave by a semitone. So um, if I take an octave, if I reduce it by one semitone, I get a major seventh. Major seventh, for some reason, just on their own, a bare major seventh doesn't sound very nice. But if it's in the middle of a, a bigger chord, it contributes scrunch for some reason. Whereas if I expand the octave by a semitone and get uh, that contributes unpleasantness. Let me just illustrate. I'll go back and play some of the chords. I won't do the whole lot. But uh, here was a tame one. That doesn't have any, you have to take my word for it, it doesn't have any major sevenths or minor ninths. But uh, what is it that explains the unsatisfactory nature of that it's that? It's an octave plus a semitone. And then what makes this one scrunchy? It's the, uh, this one, which is uh, a major seventh. What about that? It's the um, major seventh again. Why is that not nice? Because it's got a minor ninth. So I could carry on. But um, all the ones that I said were scrunchy had major sevenths. All the ones that I said were tame had neither and all the ones that I said were unpleasant had um, minor ninths in them. And it seems that the ear can just hear that really very easily for some reason. And that leads to some very simple uh, rules if you're a pianist and you want to get a reasonable sounding harmony. Um, so first of all, if you want to play a seventh, if the, you, you've got the, the bass note, which in this case I was using a C, then you play the third and you play the seventh. And then on top you put some other notes. And the main notes you want to avoid are the ones that are a minor ninth, that are a minor ninth above these two. And if anything else basically sounds okay. And then I want to avoid this one because that's and I want to avoid that one. And a general sort of rule is whatever you play in your left hand, just don't play anything that's a semitone above it in your right hand. Of course, when you're, when you're actually improvising, you're not sort of thinking, I've got to avoid that note there and so on. But you, you uh, develop a kind of instinct for avoiding them. Um, now, I want to answer, all this was it, to answer the question, where does the tension come from? And it was the amount of scrunchiness. So if you're playing something, you don't want to have it too mu- too, with too much tension, then you have sort of tame notes. Now, suppose you want to ratchet up the tension a bit, then you change to the uh, scrunchier notes, which are further round the cycle of fifths. So, and then it, that makes it want to resolve um, in a way that previously was achieved just by having a seventh. So, um, I think that may be all I want to say before playing the next. Yep. Okay. Let's uh, do. Um, things ain't what they used to be. So I'm going to play a 12-bar blues, uh, a slow one, in the hope that that will make it, uh, you can hear some of the sort of harmonies I've been talking about in (laughs) D-flat. One, two, three, four...
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: OK, a little bit more maths now. Um, but we're glad to know that learning your tables in clock arithmetic is um, a lot simpler than it is in ordinary arithmetic. Uh, let's just have a look at how they work. And here are all the times tables all at once. So the 1 times table just goes 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and then you get back to naught again. The 2 times table, if you imagine adding 2 hours at a time you'll go from twelve o'clock to two o'clock to four o'clock to six o'clock to eight o'clock to ten o'clock and back to twelve o'clock again. Um, so that repeats after every six jumps. If you go around with a three times table and you can see the four quarters of the clock, naught three it's better to call 12 naught if you're a mathematician. So you get naught three six nine naught three six nine and so on. Four times table, naught four eight, naught four eight And then suddenly, the 5 times table looks very, very different. The 5 times table goes all the way through all 12 numbers in a slightly funny order, uh, whereas the other ones didn't. And actually, mathematically, it's quite easy to tell the difference between the numbers that go through all 12, I mean, the times tables that go through all 12 numbers, and the ones that don't. The ones that don't are the ones that have a factor in common with 12. So if I take a number like uh, 8, then 12 and 8 um, have the fact of four in common. Four goes into eight, and four goes into 12. And because of that, in fact, you can even say because four goes into 12 three times, that actually turns out to be the reason that the eight times table uh, cycles round after every three jumps. Um, so what does that say to us uh, in music? Well, let's play the three times table on the piano, um, otherwise known as the uh, diminished... Um, chord. So it goes, uh, If I jump up three notes, and then I go up another three notes, I get to that, and I end up getting this. And um, so this brings me to a a very important topic in uh, jazz improvisation, which is um, symmetry. So the, the chord I've just played, if I transpose everything up by a minor third, i.e. three semitones, I get the same chord, basically. So if I play this, and I've got it's the same chord, or it's the same bunch of notes. It's just which octave you're playing them in uh, changes a little bit. This is what mathematicians would call a translational symmetry. I translate it by a minor third, and or transpose it, if I had to use a more musical term, and the basic set of notes doesn't change. In jazz, we've got a very uh, useful notion of substitution. If you notice the two notes that I played in the left hand, when I'm with well, those two notes, so those. This is actually the six times table in uh, what I was doing before. Because two sixes are twelve, the six times table is particularly simple um, in clock arithmetic. You just go naught six, naught six, naught six, and you could hear that uh, the musical realization of it there. Um, but if I take those two notes, if instead of uh, moving these ones by six semitones, I move the bass by six semitones, then that goes up to there. Uh, In if, if, if I transpose the whole thing up by six semitones, I get to... But those two notes were the same as these two notes. So the two notes that you play above a C are the same as the two notes that you play above an F-sharp. And that allows you to do what's called, in jazz people, call a tritone substitution. So you can take a, a nice tame chord like this. I've already sort of done this, actually. And I can make it scrunchy. Instead of uh, changing what I play in the right hand, I can play exactly the same in both hands, but change the bass. And suddenly it becomes a scrunchy chord, whereas before it was a tame chord. And the other way around, if I take a scrunchy chord, I can tame it by. by changing the bass by um, a diminished fifth, or a tritone, or, or six semitones. So the mathematical symmetry that you get, the translational symmetry of uh, adding six, has a very direct and extremely useful to jazz musicians uh, counterpart. Uh, the tritone substitution, as I've just illustrated, tends to take tame things to scrunchy ones and the other way around. So another way of creating tension is if the, the, um, if I carry on, say we're playing what we were playing before, and I just carried on playing um, Tame stuff, and if Tim got bored and said, this all sounds a bit sort of pathetic, he could make it scrunchy by switching uh, from the key that we were nominally in. That time it was D flat, and he could change to um, a G instead. In fact, he did do that a few times, because that's what jazz musicians do. Um, so uh, I will now Let me just uh, do one other notion of substitution. and. Uh, I've got to keep a close eye on the time. Um, Here's a very nice scale. If you take one diminished uh, arpeggio like this, and I add in another one, put them together, I get the following set of notes. And because it was made out of two of these sorts of chords, which don't change when you transpose them up a minor third. If I put them both together, it also won't change. So if you listen, here's this. If I transpose that up by a minor third, I get. It's the same set of notes, um, but just in different octaves. And again, I can do the same sort of trick. So I can, instead of changing what I do in the right hand by a minor third, I can change what happens in the left hand. So. And that's a sort of very nice, useful, at least sometimes, trick that one can do is, uh, uh, um, when playing a piece of jazz. And again, so the, the point I'm making, the, the, the math music point I'm making here, just to be clear, is that a very simple piece of mathematics that um, the three times table. Is particularly nice in clock arithmetic; it goes north three six nine north three six nine, leads to all sorts of musical things that you can actually hear. Um, I want to go a little bit uh, further at this point um, and talk about chord progressions and how those work. So I've talked so far about individual chords. Um, I want to talk about one particular, quite interesting uh, chord progression, which is an answer to the mathematical question of what happens if you keep on adding 3 and subtracting 7. Now, If you think about it, if you add 3 and subtract 7, the net effect of that is to subtract 4. And if you're in a clock, subtracting 4 is something you can do three times before you get back to where you started. So if you add 3, subtract 7, add 3, subtract 7, add 3, and subtract 7, you'll get back to where you started by that little argument. Uh, no sleight of was involved there. In fact, let's just prove it. Um, add 3, subtract 7. Subtracting 7 from 3 doesn't look as though it gives you 8, but on a clock it does. 7 hours before 3 o'clock, if you work it out, is 8 o'clock. Uh, so I keep on going. I get uh, 8, 11, 4, 7. And I'm back to where I started with naught. Now let's translate that into music. Um, I'm going to start on a B. And so I add 3. So that goes up a minor 3rd. I subtract 7, so that's down a a fifth, that gets us down to G, add three, B-flat, subtract um, seven, that's E-flat, add three, that's G-flat, and then we're back to where we started with a B. I now want to uh, play a very short excerpt um, if you're ready to do that. Um, where we can actually hear this, this, is, this comes from Ondine from Gaspard de la Nuit. I'll sort of wave my arms around when we get to the bit that I really want you to listen to, where we can actually hear this right, you couldn't hear the harmony coming out of that let me just quickly slowly play what not quickly slowly let me just uh, I do me quickly to the piano and then slowly at the piano um, so it wasn't total nonsense so um, that's, that's uh, went from B to D and then. was the chord sequences going on. And in the bass, it was Um, I can't play Ondine from Gaspar de Nuit to save my life. Um, Not sure I can play the next piece to save my life either. But I'm going to try. So this is a a piece called Giant Steps by John Coltrane. And um, it also makes this, uses exactly the same trick of adding three and subtracting seven, or adding a minus seven and subtracting it. Um, so I just wanted to make the connection between Ravel and John Coltrane. I couldn't, couldn't resist it. But it's, the only difference is it's major chords. So it's, um, instead of B minor, it's B major. You'll hear that uh, chord sequence going on. And it does, it does, it, it's, this was something that uh, Coltrane was famous for Inventing, or at least introducing into jazz, but Ravel got there a few decades earlier, I think. But uh, so let's do this then. I've already, whoops, I've already said that that was Ravel and John Coltrane. We're going to play one more quick number now. Then I gotta, if I've got time, uh, I'll, if there's time for a question or two, I might do that. Uh, and then we'll play something else when you're going out. Okay. Um, so we'll do number six. Should just say, although the chords in that were quite different from some of the chords we had before, the same principle of avoiding being a semitone above what you do in the left hand with the right hand still applied. But that's the one the one final point I want to make. <laughs> if anybody oh, I can certainly do that. Yes, certainly. Well, I hope I've sort of given some explanation of that. Th- Did everyone hear the question? Yes, sorry. The question was, what if, why is it that people agree on what's harmonious and what's not? Well, at least with that example, I think there was just an objective explanation. For some reason that I don't fully understand, we seem to be rather sensitive to the difference between a minor ninth and a major seventh. They both sound dissonant, so maybe that's there's a sort of... I mean, another answer is that uh, we tend to like as I've already mentioned, we like uh, ratios of frequencies that can be given by simple fractions. But that's not the whole story, because if you take a perfect fifth given by the simplest, given by the ratio three over two, um, that sort of sounds a bit bare somehow. It doesn't sound, whereas a third people somehow think of as nice and sugary. and uh, Whereas fifths and fourths are um, bare. They don't clash at all, but... Uh, so why, I mean, I still saw nodding when I said that, sort of thirds are nice and fifths and fourths are bare and major sevenths are a bit uh, dissonant and I've basically just repeated the premises of your question <laughs> without giving the answer to it, I'm afraid. To, to what extent has what you've been telling us, a
1: mathematician studying what jazz musicians already do as practice, has it in your own music or in others, led to new forms of
0: music? Uh, I wouldn't say it has. I suppose, in theory, it might, although I think most of what I'm doing is just uh, explaining in a different way things that are completely familiar to uh, jazz music. And I ought to add, actually, a little uh, acknowledgement here, which is that many of my ideas about jazz harmony came from my father. It's, uh, as with many people who have an interest in jazz, lurking behind them somewhere is a father who also had an <laughs> interest in jazz. Uh, particularly if you're my sort of age, so that your father was uh, in his youth at a more jazzy time than it is, than it is now. Um, um, why is the scale divided into 11 equal notes, not, say, 13 or 9 or any oh, other number? I should have said that actually. Uh, um, the reason is that, uh, or we could call it 12 to get back to where you started. Um, it's exactly that phenomenon that uh, if you take seven, if you go up seven steps, when you go e- up equal twelfths um, of an octave, you happen to get something that's very, very close to three over two. If you try, say, an octave divided up into 11 notes, you find that there aren't any frequency ratios that occur in that scale that are anything like as satisfactorily close to fractions with small denominators as, as that example of three over two. Uh, it's not completely true. If you go up to a 31-note scale, it turns out that there are some very uh, good approximations to simple frequency ratios. Um, so some work better than others. 12 works particularly well, which is why we tended to use 12. 31 we could have used, but uh, that would be a little bit complicated, and it's not so easy to hear. Um, if you listen to 30, I've I listened to some 31-note music. Unfortunately, my ear is so attuned to twelve-note music, it just sounds like twelve-note music that's slightly out of tune. But uh, yeah.
2: very interesting that you've shown how mathematics of the clock, arithmetic of the clock, can lead to these
0: possibilities. Is there a limit to the number of possibilities that you can reach? in, for, for example, jazz harmony? Is there a limit to the number of systems that you could well, in- actually envisage? there is one historical progression that sort of basically played itself out, which is adding more and more notes to what jazz musicians play, and getting, when um, the sort of, what I've been calling scrunchy first came in, which was roughly speaking with Charlie Parker, a lot of people absolutely hated it, and then they got used to it, and so then people had to add more notes and be more sort of uh, dissonant, but after a while, there are only twelve notes in the octave, and there's a, you can't go. There becomes a limit to how dissonant you can get. So just as actually with uh, Western classical music, there was a sort of progression as more and more dissonance was allowed and less and less sort of simple harmony. But eventually, that sort of had to stop. And people, in order to make progress in the sort of development of classical music,
2: they had to think of other things
0: to do than just being uh, adding more notes, so to speak. Um, the same thing happened in jazz, but it all happened much more quickly. It just happened over the course of a few decades
2: rather than a few centuries. I hate to jump in on the word stop, but it's like a Pavlovan cue. Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm sort of overwhelmed with delight and, uh, and interest uh, uh, and would like this to go on for another hour or so, but uh, if I say that this lecture was extremely scrunchy and not at all <laughs> tame, I think in this context it will be well understood uh, what I mean. Now I understand why I like fifths and major sevenths, and why I don't like minor ninths. Now I understand the connection between Ravel and John Coltrane. And now I know how you can play the three times table on the piano. Uh, And for all these things, I am extremely grateful, both to you, Tim, and to the musicians. Thank you enormously. So, so this is to play you out with. Thank you all very much.
0: Con Alma.